What are you waiting for? I ask because I think we're all waiting for something. A parcel, a holiday, the next series of Shetland, Christmas, only 328 days to go. The anticipation is part of the fun. Or maybe we're waiting for something to get mended or to get better or be finished. The car, a broken leg, the extension. Those sorts of waits aren't so much fun. We just want it to be over so we can get on with our lives. And I hate to mention it, but I think the pandemic falls into that category, doesn't it? It's something we're all longing to be done with. Then there are the life and death waits, when we don't know whether the end of our waiting is something desirable or not. For example, a life-saving operation, which is also life-threatening. Or the sort of situation where a well-meaning friend says, no news is good news, and you're really not sure that that's true. Then there's the waiting for exam results sort of waiting, which in my experience is unlike anything else. Your GCSEs, A-levels, finals are over, you've done your best, or not. There's nothing more you can do anyway, and you can relax for a few glorious weeks. Although, not if it's mid-year exams. Some people are definitely better at waiting than others. For example, my dad is dreadful. When our children were little, I gradually made him and my mum come for Christmas later and later, because he would always want to give the children his presents the minute he walked through the door. Which I felt was very counterproductive, because I was trying to train them to be patient. Eventually, we found the perfect compromise. My parents would arrive on Boxing Day. The passage we heard from Luke a few moments ago sounds at first hearing like the simple tale of the dedication of a baby. But as you may have guessed from my musings, it's also a tale about waiting. A young mother has been counting the days until her purification ceremony and the opportunity to take her first baby to the temple. Two elderly people have been longing all their lives for the Messiah to come. The whole world is waiting for the unveiling of God's plan for the salvation of the nations. So, let's use our imaginations a little to spend more time in the temple that day. Come with me to the temple. The first thing we notice is that there are crowds of people. Priests coming and going, Pharisees, scribes, money changers, people selling live animals for the sacrifices, and ordinary people, of course. It's colourful. 
noisy and very smelly. This is the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which feels more like a marketplace than a temple. So let's move into the court of the women. Only Israelites, men and women, are allowed here. It's quieter, still busy, but we're definitely now in a place of worship. As we look one way or another, our gaze settles on an elderly man, respectably dressed in the clothes of a devout believer. He seems to be looking out for something or someone. Simeon. He's not always in the temple. He's come specially today. Simeon is described with the sorts of words that are also used for Abraham and Moses. Righteous, a true worshipper of God. The Spirit of God is upon him. He's been waiting for this something or someone for years, for his whole life in fact. And now as he knows he's drawing towards the end of his life, he also knows Today is the day. Did he wake up this morning and just know? Or was he passing the temple and felt drawn in? We don't know. Just like we don't know whether his heart was pounding and his legs were trembling. We don't know, but mine would be. We look around to see what he's searching for. His gaze and ours falls on a couple who had just come in from the court of the Gentiles. The woman looks very young, barely more than a girl, yet in her arms is a baby, just over a month old. And the way she looks at him and the way the man with her looks protectively over them both, tells us this is a family. And she's coming to the temple for the rituals due after a birth. But look, that's definitely why they're here. They've brought two birds to sacrifice. Simeon is waiting in the court of the women. He sees the couple with their baby and his heart leaps. We recognise that feeling of exaltation, of arrival. We've climbed the mountain. Our team has won the cup. Our exam result is posted and we've got a first. To be honest, I've never known that feeling. The one we love has returned home after a long time away. Simeon approaches the couple eagerly. Oh, goodness me, he's taken the baby right out of the mother's arms. He must have said something to them. They wouldn't have let just anybody do that. Let's get closer so we can hear what he's saying. He's laughing and weeping and praising God. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, 
as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. This child is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Simeon is saying, this is the Saviour. This is the Messiah. This is the King of glory. Come into his temple. That is what the ancients were singing about in Psalm 24. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the King of glory enter. Simeon hands the baby back to his mother, Mary, of course. And she and Joseph look at him with wonder, but also somehow unsurprised. Suddenly, out of the corner of our eye, we see movement. We turn. A woman, very old, but moving surprisingly quickly, comes over. It's Anna. Anna has been waiting 84 years. It's thought that perhaps some of the early scribes copying out versions of the Bible couldn't quite get their heads around this. And they rewrote this verse to say she was a widow until she was 84. But actually, a literal translation of the earliest and most reliable texts says she was married for seven years and then she was a widow for 84 years. So, if she'd been married at 14, not untypical for the time, she would have been 105 by the time Jesus was born. Simeon, Simeon, this is him. This is the one promised, the one who is going to rescue Jerusalem. She laughs and weeps just like Simeon. She calls out, come and see, this is the one. Here is the promise of God fulfilled. She tells everyone, she catches their arms, she points to the Saviour. And then we turn back to Simeon, because he's speaking again to men this time, rather than God. And his words take a different turn. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your very soul. These words hit us like the clang of a bell. Until now, there's been nothing but the celebration of women, men and angels in Luke's Gospel. The discordant note of the prophecy cuts across the jubilation, an echo of what is to come. Perhaps even Simeon 
doesn't fully comprehend. But we know. Israel was called to dedicate the firstborn of all their flocks and herds and their firstborn sons to the Lord. So the firstborn of all their flocks and herds was sacrificed. But God doesn't want human sacrifices. He made that very, very clear millennia ago to Abraham when Isaac was spared death by the sacrifice of the ram caught in the thicket. And the lambs were sacrificed to save Israel's firstborn as they fled from Pharaoh. And so, from the time of the Exodus, the Israelites were supposed to redeem, to pay a price, that is, to buy back their firstborn sons. This is a momentous day for Joseph and Mary, as they have come to fulfil all the requirements of the law. Everything that needs to be done is done in this single visit. The purification of the mother, the dedication of the firstborn to God, the payment of the redemption price. They have absolutely no idea the path their child's life will take, the path Jesus will choose to take, the path he has given up the throne of the universe to take. Imagine how they would have felt if they had been told that the redemption ritual was to come to nothing, that it wouldn't save his life. I ask myself, how would I have felt if I had known that my child was going to be sacrificed? Well, we don't need to imagine, because Matthew tells us what they do at the first sign of a threat. When they find out Herod wants to kill their beautiful baby boy, they run away and hide him in Egypt until Herod has died. And then when they come back, they settle in a place no one will ever associate with the Saviour. God did not require his people to sacrifice their children as the pagans did. But he did not allow himself the same privilege. God sacrificed his only son. And somehow this day in the temple brings home to me especially clearly the cost of that sacrifice. All the joy and the hope wrapped up in that tiny baby, the parental love, the prophet's celebrations, the crowd's wonder. And yet, and yet, the baby is destined to die. But 
and God's reversal of all that what we might hope on and deserve, God's unredeemed son, born to die, becomes the redeeming son, born so that all might live. And the firstborn who is sacrificed becomes the firstborn from the dead. We know what Simeon's words mean, but Joseph and Mary didn't. They couldn't. How could they know the fullness of grief and suffering that was to come? Physicists sometimes muse on why the arrow of time only flows one way, unlike space. But I think God places us within time as a kindness, so that we can't see the future, because seeing everything that will happen would be too much to bear. And all this lies over 30 years in the future. So the little family is protected today from a full understanding of what will happen. Today is allowed to be a day of rejoicing and wonder. Eventually, the sacrifice is made, the rituals completed, Joseph and Mary leave. And not long after, they leave Israel as well for the safety of that distant land. The ordinary home of a craftsman's family in Egypt and then in Nazareth is where God's son grows up, learns the scriptures, becomes a man, and from where he steps out into his destiny. Joseph and Mary, an ordinary couple living extraordinary lives because of their open-hearted obedience to God. And Simeon and Anna, these two elderly prophets appear just once in the Bible. They achieved no great works that we're aware of, and yet by welcoming Jesus into the temple and into their hearts, their names have gone down in history. Our last of Anna is of someone bubbling over with good news, sharing it with everyone she meets. Whether she was 105 or 84, this is an extraordinary witness from a lady for whom age really is just a number. And Simeon retires from our sight, ready now to meet his maker. He can die happy. He has followed where the Spirit leads until the end. This day, these encounters draw together threads from the tales of the patriarchs and the exodus, strands from the prophets, weaving into fulfillment in the life of this child, the suffering servant, the division of hearts, the final victory. The whole of history, past, present and future, shimmers in the tapestry of this day.
It's time for us to leave the temple too. And as we prepare in a few moments to leave our seats, put on our coats, and isn't it nice that we were able to take them off today, and go back outside into the world, we ask, what does this story tell us today? Whatever it is we're waiting for. First, unlike Simeon and Anna, we are no longer waiting for God's plan for salvation of the nations to be revealed. We know our Saviour has come. And he has released us from sin and the law and the never-ending temple sacrifices by his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. The unredeemed son become the redeeming son. We have been freed to live lives governed by love, not striving for God's approval, but thriving in his loving kindness. Secondly, and the physicist in me loves the contradiction here, we are still waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. We have a hope that God will yet redeem not just us but all of creation. There will come a time when all our tears are dried and all our hurts are healed. And this hope sustains us now, transforms us now. Because to bring a taste of that future kingdom to earth now is something we want to fight for. And thirdly, we do not wait alone in the dark. We have a comforter. We have a God who has walked where we walk, experienced the worst we can experience. Jesus suffered the incomprehension of family and friends, grief, abandonment, betrayal, pain, torture, death. And after he had risen from the dead and ascended to the sit at the right hand of the Father, he sent us his spirit to walk alongside us, God alongside, who knows how we feel who intercedes when we cannot with sighs beyond words that reach right to the throne of the Father. So we too can live ordinary lives made extraordinary by obedience to God. We can be people who bubble over with good news to everyone we meet. We can worship until the end of our days and step into the arms of our Master with joy. All because of the little baby carried through the temple doors that day. The King of glory come into the world. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Let's go.